When most people think of London, their first thoughts are of the iconic attractions. Few, however, realize the influences that other cultures have made to British society. Author and tour guide Rachel Kolsky takes us on an in-depth tour of Jewish London. So when you go to the Jewish East End, you've got these this multi-layering, and then you've also got the stories of the people who made a difference. This next hour, we welcome back three old friends. Darlie Newman, host of the Amazon Prime show Travels with Darlie, takes us on some new adventures. Best-selling author James Rollins uncovers new secrets in his latest Sigma Force thriller, The Demon Crown. He also shares a great scuba diving location. Finally, our good friend and favorite historian Stan Ellsworth takes us along on his Harley-Davidson to uncover more of America's past. Seeing what America is and how many different faces really make up the American family and finding out that underneath all the stuff that you can say, well, this makes us different, is one heartbeat. Join us as we discover secrets, adventures, and cultural heritage on World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Just ahead, we will explore some of America's famous historic sites on the back of a Harley-Davidson with American Ride host Stan Ellsworth. We'll also talk to best-selling author James Rollins about his latest international thriller in his Sigma Force series, The Demon Crown. James also shares one of his favorite scuba diving discoveries. We welcome back adventure traveler and television host, Darlie Newman, who shares her journeys and misadventures on her Amazon Prime show, Travels with Darlie. Plus, we will enjoy a taste of Cabo San Lucas and the island of St. Martin in the coming hour. But first, the Jewish presence in London dates as far back as the 11th century. Many of the attractions, inventions, food, art, and architecture that we attribute to British society were influenced by the Jewish culture. We will explore a different side of London with tour guide and author of Jewish London, Rachel Kolsky. London is very diverse and, and really a huge melting pot. Is that what inspired you to create this guidebook, Jewish London? Firstly, you're absolutely right. London is um, a melting pot. Although, because curiously enough, the word, the term melting pot always tends to be linked to um, New York, you know, in the States rather than London. We don't tend to use the term melting pot. I've never really understood uh, why. But uh, London today, the, the word that they the phrase that tends to get used a lot in Britain is uh, multicultural, although that term has been, you know, not, not, every, not everybody warms to it. But there's absolutely no doubt about it. If you go to London today, just sit on a tube, uh, amble down a street, um, basically almost every accent or language you hear will not be English. It, it's absolutely quite amazing. And the other thing that I've noticed as I have got a little bit older, I've just reached my the big O, and I'm now, I'm now officially a concession. I'm embracing it. I'm loving it. But um, one of the things I've really noticed is how odd I feel and how out of place I sometimes feel because I'm, um, I'm older 
and I'm English and I've only ever really lived in London. I only, I only haven't lived in London when I went away to college. And even then I went to another big city in the northwest of England called Manchester. So I'm, a, I'm an urban girl. And that is the main difference one notices when you come to London now. It's so international and it's so young, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. There's, a, there's an amazing um, energy uh, in, in London, a different energy to New York. People always talk about New York's energy, but London is buzzy and it's buzzy now. 24-7, we used to always say that about New York, um, but there's something going on every hour of the day um, in London. And the, the notion of being interested in different cultures and the different heritage of the different immigrant groups, that is becoming much more... The, the interest in it is becoming much more no, noticeable. So, for instance, I've been guiding now for nearly 20 years. I, I'm a librarian by profession, but I started guiding as a hobby. You know, I started, you know, I, I enjoyed the studying. I, you know, I started doing it in my part, in my spare time at weekends, you know, days off. And then um, I left work around 10 years ago. When I started out guiding, uh, I was one of the very few guides who did the tours of the Jewish East End. Um, mm. and, and the Jewish East End then, was a little bit down at heel. People, people often weren't quite keen to come because they couldn't get a frothy coffee or a croissant. You know, it, <laughs> you know I'm, I'm talking about even, you know, the very late 90s, very early, early 2000s. You know, no frothy coffee. I don't want to go. It's a little bit, a little bit edgy. Mm. But since then, that area, and we'll probably come back to that later in the conversation, I hope, that area, the Jewish East End, Spitalfields area, just to the east of the city, has become... I consider to be one of the top 10 places to go in London when people visit. I'll come, like I say, I'll come back to that. But also, there's a growing interest in other immigrant groups as well. So, for instance, uh, Brixton, uh, where there was, uh, there was and still is a, a very considerable uh, Caribbean uh, mm-hmm. community, mm-hmm. Uh, dating typically from the 50s and, and 60s. I take a lot of groups now to Brixton. And again, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, you know, Brixton, uh, Brixton's reputation was such that why would you go? I mean, you just wouldn't want to go. You wouldn't want to explore it. You, it was a little bit too edgy. You know, you felt a little bit out of your comfort zone. And Brixton now, absolutely. You know, I've taken groups around um, uh, West Ham, which is a very um, um, Bengali area. Like some of the streets are 95% Bengali. And um, they're areas that people, if you typically don't live in that area, it's not your community. People really enjoy, people are really enjoying exploring um, and discovering other, uh, other areas of London that are new to them with, with very distinct um, immigrant, immigrant groups. And, um, th- I, and I think that's, that's all to the good. That's all to the good. Yeah, I mean, you, you reminded me of, of a couple of things when I lived there. Um, you know, when I think about the East End, I think of, I think of the show EastEnders. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay. Yep, yep. Which, which is shown here in, in the States uh, on, on PBS uh, at times. Um, but Brixton also, you know, Brixton reminds me of Harlem, Harlem, New York, and Harlem has gone through a renaissance. The reason I put now visiting the East End is one of the top 10 places to visit. So if somebody's coming to London for the first time, or they haven't been for a little while, and they say, what are the things we should do? I'll always put on the East End. And the reason I do that is because the area just east of the city was where historically there have always been different immigrant groups making their home there. So if you go back hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, the, the Flemish, you know, from Belgium were there. And then the French came in the late um, 17th century fleeing persecution. Then the Irish came and they, a lot of them lived in East London. They were building the docks 
people building the railways, building the canals, you know, and they lived near where they worked. Then you, in the 1700s, so before the Irish, you had a lot of uh, Germans coming over, and that continued well into the 19th century. And then, of course, you have the Jewish community, which is a story in itself, because after having been expelled, they came back in 1656, and the, the the community gradually grew and grew and grew. And then in the late 19th century, um, when so many of them had to flee the pogroms and persecution in Russia, Poland, um, that's when the um, those Jewish uh, re- refugees joined a very established Jewish community uh, that had, you know, built itself up and um, broken down a lot of the civic disabilities. And so uh, in the late 19th century, you had this massive wave of immigration coming in, but they came to a London where the Jewish community that had already been established a little bit could look after them, you know, and, um, and help them. In the 1940s, after the war, you get a new group of immigrants coming into the East End, you know, the Bengalis, um, uh, the Muslims, and they began to grow from the 40s and 50s, then mostly male, and then from the 1970s, women and children joined them through the because of the civil war in East and West Pakistan. And then another big uh, group, a considerable group, I should say, coming in um, in the 20th, late 20th, early 21st century will be the Somalis. So when you go to um, the East End of London, there are so many different themes you can look at because you can you can follow the story of the Jewish journey and you can weave in the stories of the other immigrant groups. You know, they came and they went, they came and they went, you know, and there are buildings in the East End which have been used by different immigrant groups. You know, you can find uh, one of the key buildings on Brick Lane is a building that was built as a French Huguenot chapel, Protestant worship. Yeah. Then it became a synagogue. And then when the Jewish community moved away, the Muslim community had grown, it became a mosque. So you look at one building and you've got the story of three very different immigrant groups woven into that one that one um, corner building on Brick Lane. And you've got other buildings like that as well. So you can go to that area and experience that, that Jewish journey, but also not ignoring, you can't ignore the other immigrant groups as well. But of course now you've got a whole new immigrant group coming in, and those are the young the young people, young people, whether British or from Europe, mm-hmm. and they like to live in the East End because it's so close to the city or the Docklands where they work. Plus, London, it's like an inversion of housing inversion. So when I was, when my parents were getting married, they all wanted to move to the suburbs, you know, semi-detached suburbia. Then my generation, we wanted not so much to go to suburbia, we wanted urban suburbia. I suppose you'd think I've been told I'm a Brooklyn girl, Brooklyn Heights girl, so you can, that will give you, so hopefully you might understand then my spiritual home, in, in my spiritual home is Upper West Side, right. but where I would end up living would be Brooklyn Heights, so that, my generation were very much what I call urban suburb uh, people, and then the new, the, the generation below me, they, they want to live as close to the centre of London as possible, they want to live close to where they work, mm-hmm. and then what's grown up around them is just this massive, you know, eating, drinking, nightclubs, doing things, buzziness. So when you go to the Jewish East End, you've got these, this multi-layering, and then you've also got the stories of the people who made a difference. I'm a very, I'm a social history person, and I'm always looking for what I call the hidden, the, uh, the human stories behind the buildings. So I look at a building, I'm walking around a street, I'm looking at buildings, and I'm always thinking, who lived there? Who worked there? Who died there? What happened in that building? Mm. And you can build up this wonderful 
um, web of stories of people. Sometimes the buildings don't exist anymore. Sometimes there's just an empty space. And when I'm with my my groups, my job is to my job is to show them that empty space, <laughs> but paint the picture of what was there. Tell them what the building was like, what was there, and who came along, and what happened there. But when you weave the story while you're standing there, there are these notions of recognition. You know, when I mention an organisation that everybody's heard of, but they had no idea. Who, who founded it, why they founded it, where they founded it. And so it gives another dimension to things that they know of on their day-to-day life, perhaps, but now they actually can see where it all, all began. You're listening to World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. We're talking to Rachel Kolsky about her cultural guidebook, Jewish London. We asked Rachel about the lasting contributions the Jewish community has made to British society. That's what I always hope when people read the book, Jewish London, that as they read the book, go on the the self-guided walks, read the features, that they get an idea of actually how much the Jewish community, how entwined the Jewish community is into the community as a a whole. Um, You know, there's so many people, uh, you know, um, go around a high street and, and go to Tesco's, which is one of our big uh, supermarkets, one of our big food supermarkets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It also does close now, but you know, um, that was started by um, a Jewish gentleman. He was born in, in London, uh, but his parents were immigrants, and in fact, there's a plaque on his home, and we included that um, in the in the book. So, uh, so things like that, Marks and Spencers, you know, which is a very famous uh, clothing store and food store in London. But, you know, Michael Marks was, um, was an immigrant, you know, and uh, came over to the northwest of England and set up a market stall and it just, it just took off. Um, there are names that um, resonate around the world, for instance, like the Rothschilds. And, you know, uh, people always think in terms of the Rothschilds being a Jewish family and a, and a wealthy banking family. Absolutely, they were. But they gave back so much to the community. So you, you walk around um, uh, maybe the East End and you'll see a block of flats that was built as affordable housing for the, for the working poor. Not the down and outs, but the industrious poor, mm-hmm. as, they were, as they were known. And that was um, a housing initiative by the first Lord, Lord Rothschild. There were lots of charitable endeavours by uh, the Rothschild ladies, you know. And the, just, just by looking and, and seeking out the stories, you will find them. People who work in the city, certainly years ago, always used to use a Reuters screen, you know, as a very common, you know, a very, uh, a name that was known a lot in the city world. And, um, um, you know, Paul Julius Reuter, he, he was born Jewish. I mean, he actually converted to Christianity. So lots of people did convert to Christianity. It was a way of getting on. But, you know, you can't deny, you know, the, um, they never denied their, their heritage. And so uh, anybody that worked in the city would have to thank, you know, Reuter for all their, for all their information. Um, you've got uh, Jewish, um, what can I say, uh, uh, Jewish sports people, uh, Jewish, Jewish musicians, Jewish scientists, uh, whichever sort of um, element of society or whichever artist. There's, um, one of the tours I do is in the National Portrait Gallery. And uh, the tour I do is through the uh, through the gallery, looking at portraits of Jewish people, um, and also portraits either um, or by Jewish artists. And through, it's actually one of my most favourite and popular tours. Through the, looking at the portraits of people, you actually get the story of um, of the Jewish community in in England. Um, you get the story. You start with an economist, uh, David Ricardo. Well, David Ricardo in economics is very 
well known to people in the economics world. Um, he was born Jewish. Uh, he actually. Um, he actually sort of eloped with a Quaker girl. But the point is, he came from a Jewish, a Jewish background. And, you know, I start there with the very earliest known portrait of a Jewish person um, on the walls of the National Portrait Gallery. And then you come to uh, two gentlemen that nobody has ever heard of. But when I tell them, tell everybody the story of these two gentlemen, it's a father and son. And then I say that their companies were all merged in 1926 or something, and it became ICI, Imperial Chemical Industries. Well, in Britain, that's one of the most famous companies ever. So people haven't heard of the names, Ludwig Mond or Robert Mond and Alfred Mond. They haven't heard of those names. But when I say ICI, mm-hmm. oh, you know, paints and chemicals. And then, of course, you've got Benjamin, you know, Benjamin Disraeli. You have Jacob Epstein, you know, who's one of the most well-known and revered sculptors and artists. He was born in, in New York, as you're probably well aware. Mm. You know, came over to Europe, came over to Paris, and then ended up in, in London. And then, you know, his son-in-law was uh, Lucian Freud. Lucian Freud, you know, was the, the grandson of Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, probably one of the most, probably the most famous Jewish emigre of the 1930s. Here you are just going through, you know, and I'm just pinpointing these off the top of the top of my head um you know where you go to music you know in 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 britain you can't imagine the music world and the entertainment world um without without uh, the jewish community uh, eating eat, eating in london historically and even today um you know we we wouldn't have lion's tea houses. Well, we don't have them anymore, but we had hundreds of them in their heyday. And that was um, two Jewish families coming together, um, the Salmon and the Gluckstein's. My so goodness. whatever it is you look at, you're going to find Jewish people music. You know, and, and then you look at the 1930s and the emigres that came over in the 1930s. And so many of them were interned, you know, as enemy aliens. Mm-hmm. But then they, they formed orchestras together, you know, and then formed then they formed... Uh, cultural festivals, you know, um, after the war. To explore more of Jewish London with Rachel Kolsky, visit golondontours.com and the show page at worldfootprints.com for a direct link to her tour guide page and book. In this Destination Spotlight, we learn about the aquarium of the world, Cabo San Lucas, during our visit to the Adventure Travel Expo. Cabo is located in the Baja Peninsula of Mexico, which is amazing because we actually have two converging oceans, the Sea of Cortes, which is warm and a turquoise color, and the other side, which is the Pacific Ocean. It's a little more colder, it's a little more wild, but it's a combination of both oceans. Actually, the landmark in Cabo San Lucas is the arch, the rock formation, which is there. We have the Lover's Beach, one side, which is in the calm side, and in the Divorce Beach, which is in the wild side, which is amazing, right? It's kind of like a combination of both, like the, the feeling of it. And, and that place, it had the history goes back to the, uh, what the Buccaneer, uh, Buccaneers were hiding from French, all the patrols were actually hiding in that Bay Area, on the Lover's side, because it's like a bay, and the, usually the, the pirates were hiding in that side because the French were looking out for them on the Pacific side. There's actually actually a, a hill. We, we have mountains there, which gives a lot of beauty around it. It's a desert. And one of the mountains there is called the El Vigia, which is the Watcher. That's where the pirates were on the top, watching for the French coming and hiding, which is amazing. They, they were hiding a lot of stuff in there, so some caves in there as well. And also, well, let me tell you, the, the food in there is amazing. They will have some of the best chefs in restaurants in Mexico. 
and of course uh, the gastronomy goes all the way from Mediterranean to Mexican and French like you can find everything you want in there the area is really really small it's a small town which is which is good because you can have a relaxing vacation while you're combining with locals you're combining with uh, Luxury, uh, luxury resorts, but also a small resort with the boutique resorts, which offers you more of the authentic Mexican style. There's a place called Playa Grande, which is uh, built in, in a hacienda style. So many other other resorts actually take that because we want people to come and feel like they're actually in Mexico, enjoying the desert, away from everything. And uh, that's what I think makes Cabo special. And also, let me tell you that it's, it's called the Aquarium of the World. Because if you like uh, eco tours, like scuba diving and snorkeling, you can actually go swimming, watch um, an amazing, I don't know, it's like being in space and watch all these beautiful fishes and whales we're watching. You can actually stay on, stay on the beach and see uh, some of the whales just jumping. The last time you met Darlie Newman, she was traveling around the world on horseback and sharing her adventures on her Emmy-winning travel series, Equitrekking. We are excited that Darlie is returning to World Footprints to share her newest adventures and, as you'll hear, some misadventures on her newest television show, Travels with Darlie. Sit, Darlie, welcome back to World Footprints. Thank you, Tanya. It's great to be back. <laughs> so tell us, what's going on in your world today? What's, what's, what has your focus? My focus has been traveling the world as, as usual, but um, doing it with locals for a new series, Travels with Darley, and gone everywhere from Martinique to France to Wyoming as of late. So really trying to... Um, experience a lot of different things and showcase different cultures. Mm -hmm. You know, we've always known you as a travel show host. We first met you when you started your Equitrekking series. But how did these great adventures actually start for you? And and when did the travel bug actually bite you? Oh, my goodness. I feel like I've had the travel bug probably most of my life. But I took a trip, a family trip to California when I was six years old, and that was when I really had my eyes open to a world of different cultures. I grew up in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and then in high school, I was actually able to join a family friend on a trip to Europe, and it was my first time leaving the USA, and I think we all, when we've traveled abroad for the first time, it really can be a life-changing experience, and that, just going to Europe and and, you know, being in France along the coast and going to Italy and trying that great Italian food for the first time, it just made me want to continue to kind of experience new things. And, and I've just wanted to travel and tried to do so ever since. So what has been, throughout your travels, what has been your most transformational travel experience? I feel like I've had a lot of transformational travel experiences um, but uh, to to pick out maybe a few, my trip to Botswana, Africa, I always tell people, they say, what's your favorite place? And I'll, I'll normally pick Botswana as one of my top ones, if not the top one, because it was my first time going to Africa. And then just the experiences that I had there, being out in nature where wildlife is truly roaming free and you're in these untouched places, I, I thought that was one of the most 
transformational experiences. It just made me appreciate the diversity of our planet so much more. Um, and, and to be able to experience that, I felt really lucky to be able to visit that destination in particular. It's pretty remote. It's hard to get there. Um, and I felt like it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but I hope to go back at some point. Mm-hmm. Now, have there been any surprises that you've uncovered or found through any of your travels, either personal travels or for your show? I think that's one of the best things about traveling is that you do constantly come across things that you didn't expect. I think that's one of the neat things about it. And for sure, I'm constantly surprised. I just was in um, in September, went all throughout the state of New Mexico, and found a lot of different surprising adventures there. We actually trekked along the Continental Divide Trail, which is one of our nation's national scenic trails. Um, and along that journey, we stayed in a monastery in an area where Georgia O'Keeffe had been inspired to paint. And we went over to a place called Mount Taylor, which is very significant to a lot of Native American cultures. And just that journey along this trail, which has been so well-preserved, was a surprise. We encountered a lot of surprising adventures, but they were all things, and they are all things, that people can go and recreate, which is something we try to do with our series. Mm-hmm. And I know another thing that you're trying to do with your series is show that travel is accessible to everyone, regardless of uh, physical challenge. Tell us a little bit more about what uh, you will be sharing in this uh, in, in your future uh, episodes. Yeah, well, that's one thing that I think is can be so great about kind of getting outside of your comfort zone. You don't have to necessarily go far to do that. I mean, there are a lot of great adventures to be had. Um, in destinations close to home as well as far away. And what we're trying to do when we're filming in general is find those places that, you know, you can venture to, whether it's, you know, I'm in the D.C. area now and you are too, whether it's in Maryland or whether it's down in New Mexico. And actually adventure activities that are available to a lot of people, no matter what your skill level is. So whether that's a hike where you can actually hike along a boardwalk and and it is accessible to to people of all different abilities, or whether it's um, a biking experience where you're actually getting lessons and learning how to maybe mountain bike or do something else like that. We asked Arlie how viewers might react to some of her adventures, whether we'll laugh or gasp as each journey unfolds. You probably will see both because, I mean, the, the beauty of what what I've been trying to do with the show, but also just with my, I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone when we're doing these things. I try everything that we do in our show and in general in my travels. Like I will do the mountain biking, you know, I'll go up in the hot air balloon, I'll try surfing. So you're probably going to laugh at me because I might not be so great at everything that I try. Um, But I'm going to show you, you know, the pitfalls that are involved in travel and trying new things and, so I think you'll probably laugh at me, and then you'll feel for me sometimes. <laughs> but then you'll say, well, you know what, I think I could try that too. <laughs> if she can do it, I could probably try it. Now, Daryl, um, I mentioned Equitrucking at the, uh, at the top of the, uh, the interview. You're still doing that show, is that correct? We, are, we have developed a lot of different um, platforms with Equitrucking. So online we have um, multiple websites now with lots of different information that I'm consistently writing, and then we have other folks writing for us now as well. 
um, traveling the world, riding horses, and finding those places that, again, anyone can go out and actually get on a horse and explore, whether it's Iceland or Botswana or Wyoming or Virginia, um, places where you don't have to bring a horse, you can go and, and saddle up somewhere. So we're continuing to develop resources for folks and, and, and videos and all of that kind of stuff to show them how they can get out and explore on horseback. We finished our time with Darley with a few quick fire questions about her travels. What is in your travel bag? What are some of the things that you cannot travel without? Granola bars, <laughs> because you never know when you're going to get hungry and you won't have food, um, especially when you're out in nature. Hand sanitizer, mm-hmm. I think, is something I'm always bringing now. Um, sunglasses, sunscreen, um, a hat. I always have a baseball cap with me because i got to try to protect my skin <laughs> when I'm out in the sun all the time. Right. Um, what is the best travel tip that you've found? I think you have to be prepared to roll with it when you're traveling, and that means being flexible. So my biggest travel tip is just to roll with it, and whatever comes your way, you know, try to take the good out of it and, and make it a positive experience. To follow Darley Newman's television adventures, visit DarleyNewman.com and this show page at WorldFootprints.com for a direct link. listening to the award-winning World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. Coming up next, we'll sit down with best-selling international author James Rollins, who gives us a glimpse into the world of the Sigma Force in his latest book, The Demon Crown. We will also travel across America on the Iron Horse with our other good friend, historian and television host, Stan Ellsworth, and we'll hop over to the beautiful island of St. Martin. World Footprints is committed to bridging the cultural gaps and connecting the world through powerful and honest storytelling. We invite you to travel deeper by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com. While on the site, please sign up for our newsletter to receive a free gift. Rollins is a number one New York Times bestselling author of international thrillers translated into more than 40 languages. The New York Times has lauded his Sigma series as a top crowd pleaser, and People magazine says that the Sigma Force novels are the hottest summer reads. In each novel, James unveils unseen worlds, scientific breakthroughs, and historical secrets. He returns to World Footprints to share what hidden secrets are unveiled in his newest Sigma Force novel, The Demon Crown. Spoiler alert, James gives us a hint about his next Sigma Force novel. It seems like we just spoke to you, golly, um, uh, just a few months ago, and we talked about the Bone Labyrinth. <laughs> exactly. That's the problem with doing two books a year. Uh, I sometimes feel like I'm overstaying my welcome. <laughs> no, you're always welcome here. Now... 
The Demon Crown is your 13th Sigma Force thriller. Remind us who the Sigma Force is and what threat they're facing sure. now. Well, Sigma Force is a, uh, they're former Special Forces soldiers that were drummed out of the service for various reasons, but because of special abilities or aptitudes or intelligence, DARPA, which is the Defense Department's Research and Development Agency, secretly recruits them, retrains them in various scientific disciplines, basically to become uh, covert operatives, field, field agents for DARPA. And the team basically protects the globe against various emerging threats. Uh, but as I described them, the, the most apt term is they're basically just scientists with guns. And also in this particular book, they seem to uh, cross the globe quite a bit. What destinations are you featuring in the uh, this 13th adventure? Uh, the book opens in Hawaii. Uh, unfortunately, there's a, a sort of a biological Pearl Harbor attack that occurs, so you're not going to get a lot of rest and relaxation in my Hawaiian vacation. Um, this dangerous species is released across Hawaii. Uh, people begin to die. It appears the only way to stop this is to nuke those islands. So Sigma forces to figure out, you know, where the species came from and try to find a way to destroy it. Uh, but also, you know, we traveled Europe. Uh, I did a little bit of re uh, research in, in Tallinn, Estonia. That's uh, uh, on the Baltic coast. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's also a Polish salt mine, going back to my Polish roots. And I'm curious, you know, through your travels, is there something that may inspire, like a new storyline that may take you in a different direction than you were actually planning? Does, has that happened to you? Oh, definitely. Definitely. It happens all the time. I'm notorious for like walking up to a, a townsperson or villager and say, hey, tell me something about your place that nobody knows about. Tell me a secret. And oftentimes they will. And sometimes what they tell me is quite shocking. And uh, I love then folding that into one of my, one of my novels. Uh, even in this story, you know, I was in at this polar salt mine, and it's a beautiful salt mine, and they, they have actually carved the, all the walls uh, into these beautiful religious sculptures. And, you know, I found out the fact, you know, that, that the lower levels are, are, have been flooded and that uh, there's beautiful statues buried underneath, uh, you know, drowned underneath the water and that there's you know, crypts that nobody's ever been to. So, of course, me as a thriller writer, I'm going, you know, I'm going to go down and blow things up. <laughs> So there, there is actually a lot of truth that's kind of interwoven in your fictional storylines. Try to be as authentic as I can. At the end of all my books, I have a sort of a what's true, what's not section where I pull aside the curtain mm -hmm. and, and let people know exactly how much is real. But I also leave some breadcrumbs. So if there's any topic that interests them, whether it's the history or the science, uh, hopefully I'll, I'll leave them a, you know, a few breadcrumbs to follow. Is there anything that surprised you um, significantly when you were doing your research for for this book? Uh, any any tidbits that you thought, oh my goodness, I had no idea. Yeah, actually, there actually is. I was reading, uh, talking to this gentleman, and I've had like five entomologists on like speed dial for this book because it deals <laughs> with insects, and uh, but also venomous creatures. And so I was talking to this one gentleman. He was telling me about this new drug that's very popular in India, and that is cobra venom, powdered mm. cobra venom. Apparently, uh, that venom has some type of, some type of uh, euphoric effect uh, besides being toxic, but that there actually is snake dens, similar to opium dens of the past, where rather than getting powdered cobra venom, you, you will actually get bitten by cobras uh, so that you go into this sort of euphoric, toxic high. Uh, you know, for me, I'll take a beer. Thank you very much. <laughs> 
I, I know that you also uh, have come to my neck of the woods, Washington, D.C., and, and D.C. and the Smithsonian yep. is featured in this book. Talk a little bit about that. I've gone to the Smithsonian many times because Sigma Force is headquartered there. So I've, I've spoken to different regents and to librarians and to, to museum curators trying to get some like little tidbits. And I found out that the, the founding of the, of the Smithsonian has some great mystery surrounding it. Now, uh, the Smithsonian was named after a, a British chemist and geologist named James Smithson, hence the Smithsonian. But there's some mystery surrounding this fellow. You know, when he died, he left his fortune to the U.S., never told anybody was doing that. It was only discovered when they read his last will and testament. Yet this gentleman never set foot in the U.S., yet he left his fortune to us. You know, why? And then during the Civil War, there was a mysterious fire that broke out that seemed to particularly target this gentleman's heritage. It wiped out his field books, his research papers. So that's why very little is known about James Smithson, the scientist, because it was destroyed during that fire. You know, even more of a mystery is that Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone, Mm -hmm. uh, 80 years after this gentleman died, he snuck across Europe, went to Italy. He lied there. He told everybody that, that Theodore Roosevelt sent him. Not true. He bribed officials. Then on a snowy New Year's Eve in 1903, he broke into James Smithson's tomb, secured his skeletal remains, put it in a zinc coffin, took it back to the States where those remains are now interred at the Smithsonian Castle. You know, we mentioned this is your 13th Sigma Force uh, thriller. How do you continue to come up with fresh storylines for your Sigma Force guys? Well, if anything, I've got too many ideas bouncing around my head. I'm like, I'm like that cat that chases that, that, that little light bouncing around the room. That's me with ideas. <laughs> you know, I, I've always got my antenna up for that next idea. I'm looking for that historical mystery. I'm looking for that science that makes me go, what if? Where's that headed? I'm looking for exotic locales to crash those two things together. Uh, like I mentioned, I, I like walking up to people and telling them, tell me a secret about your place or calling a scientist and say, hey, look over your shoulder. Tell me what you're working on right now. Because I want that rip from the headlines authenticity to my science. And again, sometimes they'll tell me things that they would never put in print. Um, and they're, they just uh, become great uh, fodder for future novels. Mm-hmm. Have you discovered something during the course of uh, writing The Demon Crown that you may take into your 14th Sigma Four series? Oh, definitely. I mean, even this book uh, ends with a little bit of a big surprise for the uh, for the team. There's a big twist to the storyline, uh, and I'm very excited for uh, to write that four. Actually, I've almost written that 14th novel because what happens from there is pretty cool. Wow. Well, I guess I'll give you a tidbit. Go ahead. The, the next book I'm working on, I'll give you the historical tidbit. It's really interesting. I think it's fascinating. Is that there actually is a Catholic patron saint, Saint Columba out of Spain. Catholic patron saint for witches, not against witches. She's a patron saint in support of witches. How odd is that? Wow. Wow, I'm intrigued for sure. Well, I guess we'll be talking to you again uh, again real soon. Um, and I want to go just a quick different direction before we, we leave. The last time we spoke, sure. we talked about scuba diving. We're both divers. And so I'm curious right. if you have discovered any new dive spot where have you been recently? Uh, I just came back from Fiji. Have you ever been to diving? Diving in Fiji is beautiful. Uh, you know, some places have been over, you know, there's, they're crowded. They've been over, you know, they've been polluted by other divers. Uh, to me, Fiji is one of the, I was just shocked how beautiful it was there. To follow James Rollins' literary adventures, visit jamesrollins.com and this show page at worldfootprints.com for a direct link.
in this destination spotlight, we experience the island flavor of St. Martin during our time at the Adventure Travel Expo. So St. Martin is located in the Caribbean. It's in the northern part. It's about 45 minutes away by plane from Puerto Rico. What makes us special compared to all the other islands of the Caribbean is that we're half French, half Dutch. Everyone speaks English. It's really an easygoing island where you rent a car, you go out and you explore. Um, we are a duty-free shopping island. Um, dining is exquisite due to the French and the Creole influences, so you will never have a bad meal in St. Martin. We do have a lot of day activities, zip lining and all the water sports related activities, but also at night, nightlife is intense. There's somewhere to go every night. We have 13 casinos, bars, nightclubs, so you will really enjoy being in St. Martin. We're also like the little hub to other islands. For example, Anguilla is 25 minutes away by boat. St. Bart is 40 minutes away by boat. Saba is 90 minutes away by boat. So while you're on St. Martin, you have the opportunity to visit other islands as well. So where exactly is St. Martin located in, the, in relation to other islands in the Caribbean? So we're on the northern tip of the Caribbean, so we're very near Puerto Rico, 35 minutes away, and the U.S. and British Virgin Islands are about 20 minutes away, so we're in that region. A lot of people tend to paint uh, islands in the Caribbean with a very broad stroke. What distinguishes St. Martin from some of the other Caribbean islands? I think it's the flavor and knowing that you go out and meet the locals. That what you do. You just don't come and stay on property. We have 37 beaches for 37 square miles. So it's really about going out and enjoying the place. You mentioned uh, the gastronomy, the culinary scene is influenced by the Creole population. So what is your cultural landscape? You mentioned uh, French, Dutch, but what about Caribs or Arawaks, the, the indigenous people who have populated other islands in the Caribbean? We do have um, Arawaks. The Arawaks did originate the island, but we don't have much vestige uh, about them. But St. Martin is like a melting pot. We have about 120 nationalities that live on St. Martin. So with the French influence and the French gastronomy being so great, um, we were able in our cuisine to mix the French and then the Creole Caribbean flavors to it. One of the foundational stories that we share on World Footprints is the collective history we all share. Our old friend, American Rye television host, Stan Ellsworth, shares American history from the back of his Harley-Davidson. Just as the old settlers discovered America on horseback, Stan hits the highway to uncover the landmarks of American history on his iron horse. Welcome back, longtime friend Stan Ellsworth. Tanya, it's great to be back with you. We've bumped into each other a lot over the years, haven't we? We have. You've been on our show a few times. We've been on one of your shows. <laughs> We've broken know, bread together. Great. Yeah. What's going on in your world? What has your focus now? You know, um, American Ride has gone through some changes, which is, is kind of great. We're going to be on a, a larger network. I can't say now, but keep your eye on social media. Uh, we'll be launching probably in the fall, uh, and we're also going to be carried overseas, which will be neat. Oh, uh, Domestically, we've got a, uh, a new uh, a YouTube channel. It's called History in the Highway. You can't go too far away from Yarwich Yar. You know what I mean? 
and, and so we talk history. We, we talk bikes. In fact, we just did a big shoot. I had at one of the largest Harley Davidson dealerships in the Western United States. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun. So we're kind of, you know, getting back to our roots, cutting it down to, to the basics. We talk motorcycles, we talk history, um, and we're going to start talking, like looking at uh, current events through the, through the lens of history, kind of as we always have. But we'll, we'll discuss things like uh, divisiveness, which, again, you know, that, that always makes me sad that there's so many that mm-hmm. instead of trying to find common ground, do their best to push away and just stoke the base rather than unite Americans, yes. you know, especially our representatives, you know, the, the state, local, congressional, national, all these folks are the guys that are supposed to be bringing us together as one nation. And I'm, I'm just disappointed. But, you know, um, some days... <laughs> Well, but it is. You you are you are leaving a beautiful uh, footprint, Stan, and you know, and we've always known you as this Harley riding, you know, travel television host. Um, but how did these great adventures start for you? For for those who are just meeting you know for the first time, tell give us a little uh, cliff note version of your your backstory. You betcha. Well, somehow or another, I got into entertainment. Never had any intention of doing it. I'm, I'm a football coach. And one of my, my favorite NFL team is the Baltimore Ravens. Just, that's that. I, I, <laughs> that makes you know. Ian happy. <laughs> there you go, baby. But, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, I love the Ravens. I, I think is a great coach. I Really, I'm for him because my daddy lived there in the 80s. He lived in Annapolis when the Ursay family took the Colts out of town, and he was brokenhearted by that. So when when Art Modell moved the new franchise in, I just adopted him for my dad. Mm-hmm. And, and I think they had one of the best linebackers that's ever played the game, one of the best leaders that's ever been in the NFL, just a great man, a great gentleman. You know, the guy grew up in, in hard times. And he admits that he's made some mistakes. And you see what the man has made of his life in spite of those errors and probably because of those errors. And I admire the hell out of Ray Lewis. Yeah, I think he's one of the, one of the best stories you know, in, in, in football. So I, I love the Ravens. I love Ray Lewis. Um, I, I think they're a great franchise. I think they're a great story. You know, I have to. I have to represent my home team too. You played for my home team, the Detroit oh, Lions, Detroit. for a while. Yeah. There you go, the Lions, and we were no good. But boy, <laughs> did we! Have. You know, like they say, if, if you're any good in the NFL, your money works for you later in life. And I'm still out busting my hump for a dime or two. So I must not be that good. <laughs> but you're you're having you're having fun. So you you went from football um, to entertainment, and uh, and now we see you on all sorts of screens. Uh, yeah, we do. I'm on I'm on the big, the little, the all over the place. And when I got into entertainment, I figured out if you don't make work for yourself, there ain't a whole lot coming your way. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what what can I do that nobody else does? And that's I can talk history like nobody's business. And I've been riding motorcycles since I was, I mean, big motorcycles, not not little mini bikes. I've been riding Harley-Davidson since I was about 13. 
you know, I had a, a friend whose brother was called up and gone off to the Nam, and he had a, a new Sportster back then. And it was in that, you know, metallic green, just cool as could be. And I asked him if I could ride it while he was gone, if I fixed it up, because he just put it under a, you know, a, 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 a highway you know, guardrail. And he told me if I fixed it, I could have it. So I fixed it up, and there you go. And the rest, as they say, Tanya, is, is history. history. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so through your travels, uh, what has been the most transformational travel experience you've had? You know, honestly, uh, going to Independence Hall and, and to Valley Forge might have been two of the most transformational things in my life. And, and it, it really... Um, I think it honestly changed me. You know, a lot of times, and, and I'm going to get all, you know, down-home, old-timey on you now. <laughs> uh, but uh, when, when I was in Independence Hall, you know, we're talking about the Declaration of Independence there. Um, I could feel the spirit. Mm. And I will testify to anybody that the work that happened there, that that's that's a special thing. You know, that that's the place where this freedom of religion, freedom of conscience... You know, where governing ourselves really began, because up until that time, there was nowhere on earth that that really occurred. And then that, I'm going to tell you, that's God's work right there. Mm-hmm. And then when, when we shot our Valley Forge piece, you know, the, the, the folks that ran the program, we, we shot that as our pilot. And, you know, it was cold. I mean, it was 14 degrees. That's chilly. But there was no snow. It just plain got too cold to snow. So we bring them back the the footage, we cut it and turn it into our pilot episode, and they, you know, the, the higher, higher, the bosses up there, they watch it. They wasn't a dry eye in the room. They loved it, wanted to, oh, we're going to do this show. You bet you we're going to do this American ride. And then they turned to me and said, but you got to have snow. Oh. And I, I'm, not, I'm not in charge of snow, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that ain't the, I don't do that. I leave that to bigger bigger people. But anyway, so when, when we were scheduled to get back into, you know, Pennsylvania, Maryland area, uh, it wasn't until late September. And as you know, late September out there, that's that's warm. That's nice weather. Mm-hmm. But, but when we showed up to Shoot Valley Forge, and I ain't joking with you, it started snowing the day we pulled in to the King of Prussia. We shot for two days, and then it stopped when we pulled out. Oh, my. And so I, I, I said to myself, you know, this is so much more than something that I dreamed up to keep me off the street. So, you know, I, I accept, number one, it's not about me, Tanya. It was never about me, and maybe it wasn't even my idea at all. <laughs> you know, there's a bigger plan going on. And, and I, I think for, for young people all over the nation, no matter where you are, to remember what this nation really is about and what the gift is that is given to each one of us that's important to know. And I, I went to, uh, I talked at a couple of things for the Sons of the Revolution, and I did one down south for the Sons of the Revolution, you know, there in, I think it was uh, Charleston, Sons of the Revolution in Charleston, South Carolina. And, and there was this old minister of a, of a evangelical church. And he came up afterward, you know, he's the, he's the great, 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 great grandson of a, uh, of a man of color that fought for the, for the Americans. And he laid his hands on my shoulders and he said, my brother, 
your ministry is the spirit of 1776. And when he said that, I just felt like a bolt of lightning went through my body. Mm. And I gave the man a hug, and we both cried a little bit. And uh, you know, it, it, it's been a special thing. So I, I never want to get too far away from from what that good man saw as, you know, the thing I should be talking about. Because, look, he's a man of the cloth. He, he's closer to those people in charge of snow <laughs> than I am. Oh, what a what a wonderful gift he he gave you to Stan. What have been because you have gone through this kind, you know, throughout this country, you you go into these small towns and and you share just treasures that we've never heard of. What have been some of the most surprising stories or attractions that you found on your travels? Look, I got to tell you, the best attractions that I find on my travels always barbecue. <laughs> we eat at twelve bones, and you know every mom and pop shop, and and uh, like from from West Virginia all the way. Oh, I got to tell you, we ate at this place. The food, Tanya, I love the food, but I ain't gonna do Anthony Bourdain. But we had like like cot fritters down in Key West, and pizza in New York City, and you know it's just like every place, you know, and clam chowder in Boston. I mean, wow. It's just what a great opportunity. We've had Navajo tacos out on the res and, uh, you know, eating elk with the Blackfoot Indians up in Montana. You know, this is seeing what America is and how many different faces really make up the American family and finding out that underneath all the stuff that you could say, well, this makes us different, is one heartbeat that makes us all the same. Mm -hmm. We want better for our children. We want unity. We want equality. You know, we want the rule of law. We really do believe that we're a constitutional republic and all the blessings that come along with that. Every heart, every heart, doesn't matter your color, doesn't matter your religion, doesn't matter where you might have come from long, long ago. Once you're here and, and you know, you, you adopt the American nation, you know, you're, you're involved in all these great stories about, you know, Washington and, 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 and Lincoln and uh, and Sojourner Truth and and you know Pecos Bill, even though he's a story. What a great story! These are all our stories. Yes, they're our stories, and we all can celebrate them because when we pull together, we all win. If you want to hit the highway with Stan to uncover American history, we'll have a link to his new show, History and the Highway, on this show page at WorldFootprints.com. This show has been a long time coming, but it was worth the wait because it was like a reunion of sorts with three of our favorite friends and guests returning and a new delightful guest joining us for the first time and giving me a glimpse into my former home of London. And frankly, I love Rachel and I could have spent hours talking to her and just the insight she shared with London gave me a very new perspective on my old home. What was really exciting about London that you learned from Rachel this time? Well, I think just an appreciation that a lot of things that we attribute to British society were actually influenced by other cultures like the Jewish culture. And it's always good to catch up with old friends as we did on this show. And one of those friends is Darlie Newman, who 
We cross paths with quite a bit here in Washington, and it's good to see her growth and progression from her PBS show, Equa Trucking, to now her online show, uh, Travels with Darley, and as uh, she embraces this uh, new medium. And so it's always great to see someone take off in new and exciting directions as she is. As our listeners know, one of the things that Darley and I share is our passion for horses. And and she is so lucky because she combines two of my favorite things, horses and travel, and, and I'm sure two of her favorite things. But she has moved even beyond and uh, has grown her travel show. And it was really fun seeing her at the premiere of Travels with Darley, where the first show was actually focused on Martinique, a, a place that we really love and with a character uh, chef, yeah, yes. chef, chef hot pants. pants. <laughs> yes, very colorful pants. <laughs> and they really are hot, and it's a good thing he has great legs because uh, he, he does pull them off. Uh, but I'm very, very proud of the work Darley is doing. Uh, one of my favorite authors, James Rollins, joined us again. And I tell you, this guy, he is the most prolific writer I've ever met. He cranks out his Sigma Force series, I think two books a year. And I don't know how that can be done. I mean, that's a huge feat, but he cranks them out and each one is different. And, you know, and I love the thought that he is giving to his next uh, Sigma Force novel. And I love the fact that he always gives me really good tips about scuba diving sites. Catching up with Stan Ellsworth. Uh, Stan is like a brother to us. And, you know, his passion uh, for this country, for history always comes through. And if there were more Stan Ellsworths in this world, this world would be a much better place. And so I always enjoy listening to Stan. And uh, you see this burly guy on a Harley, and he really is, a, is has a soft spot and a soft heart there for people. And that passion comes through. And our common love of football, he loves the Baltimore Ravens, and he spent time in the Detroit Lions uh, camp. So that kind of bridges us there as well. So always great to catch up with Stan. Yeah, you know, I really wish I had a Stan when I was going to school because I wouldn't have been such a slacker with my history lessons. But Stan really knows his stuff. His show is just phenomenal. And the fact that it's done on the back of a Harley Davidson is just the coolest thing. In closing, we are leaving this hour on a somber note. As you know, we recently lost a mentor and champion of transformative travel, Anthony Bourdain. What Tony accomplished on the big screen? We've tried to inspire travelers in the same way with our audio stories. So in closing, we want to honor him and share some of Tony's thoughts about travel. Travel isn't always pretty. It isn't always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. It even breaks your heart. But that's okay. The journey changes you. It should change you. It leaves marks on your memory, on your consciousness, on your heart, and on your body. You take something with you. Hopefully, you leave something good behind. There are some very powerful resources to help anyone who is suffering with depression. If you know of anyone who may be at risk, please call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. 
We will also have a link to the Suicide Prevention Crisis Center on this show page at worldfootprints.com. Thank you for joining us this past hour. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we look forward to sharing our next journey with you on World Footprints. World Footprints Radio with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints Media, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award-winning radio show can be heard around the globe on iHeartRadio, Stitcher, iTunes and more. Visit worldfootprints.com for a complete list. World Footprints Radio is a leading voice in socially responsible travel. At worldfootprints.com, you'll find an archive of past broadcasts, travel news, reviews, and information you can use to deepen your travel experience. Listen, learn, and live it at worldfootprints.com.